Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Mark chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse Number one, Mark 9, verse 1. Hopefully you have a Bible or you get on your phone or you can follow behind me. Let's all stand to read God's Word. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse number 1. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, well, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. You may be seated. I'm sure that many of you have watched a lot of... uh, Superhero movies. I feel like that they just keep coming out with some like all the time. I mean, when you get to Ant-Man, you're pretty desperate, all right? Uh, Now, some of you are like, I'm a biggest Ant fan ever. Well, good for you. But like I grew up with like the traditional superheroes. And here's the thing about the traditional ones, not the ones that they get from like the back, 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 way back books. These are like well-known ones. But one of the things you kind of see is a common theme in most mainstream superheroes, if not all, is that superheroes have secret identities. And so they would have a public identity that would be one thing, and then their superhero-ness would be another thing. And so let's just kind of, I want to test your uh, sense of comic book knowledge. And so I'm going to say their public name, you tell me their superhero name, okay? Here we go. Number one, Bruce Wayne. Clark Kent. Tony Stark. Peter Parker, Chuck Norris. (laughs) All right, Chuck Norris actually plays himself, Chuck Norris, okay? But but what often, the, the, the superhero would choose a public 
profile or a public figure that was almost the opposite of who they were as a superhero. Now, those closest to the superhero knew the real identity, but, but they would normally keep that hidden. Now, the question is, well, why would they spend so much energy not telling people who they are, truly are? Well, I, I Googled that. And I thought, well, what would Google say? And so I found about five things as a reason why superheroes had a secret identity. Number one is that their secret identity protected them from the legal ramifications of what they did. I mean, think of this. Every movie, the whole city gets blown up. Cars are blown up. Stuff happens. The amount of damage that Batman and Spider-Man and Iron Man and, and Superman, all these guys did. I mean, it would be in the trillions of dollars worth of damage. And so it would be so bad that I don't even think Morgan and Morgan could get them out of the legal ramifications. And so they protected their identities. The second reason is to, to, to skirt around the pressures of public scrutiny that people wouldn't scrutinize their every little move. A third is so that they wouldn't have to run around in a costume all the time. I mean, that would be kind of tough, right? If you had to run around in that costume. A fourth is uh, that it protected their friends and their loved ones from harm from their enemies. Although most movies are about the bad guy finding out someone that somebody loves and then there's always that issue. You had Lois Lane, you have other ones like that where the enemies, Lex Luthor and others, would, would go and, and take them away and... Superman had to save them. But, but the fifth reason is that their secret identity allowed them to live a normal life among ordinary, everyday people so that they could understand their hopes and fears and come to rescue them when they needed it. Now, the reason why we're so attracted to stories like like comic stories and superheroes is because every superhero story is just a silhouette of a greater story, of a greater and ultimate superhero. A superhero who clothed himself in humanity and came to rescue us from the worst enemies of humanity. Sin, death, hell, and the grave. That ultimate superhero is Jesus. And so here we are picking back up in the life of Jesus in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter nine is a turning point in the book. It's, it's where it changes directions. Up to this point in chapters one through eight, Mark has told us who Jesus is. Now he's going to tell us why Jesus has come. In the first half of Mark, we see that Jesus is both God and man, that he's the eternal king, he's full of forgiveness and rest, power and love. And yet even within that, there are tons of questions over how that's possible. Then at the end of chapter eight, Peter makes this great confession. He confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. And as soon as this great revelation was given to Peter and Peter confesses that publicly to the other disciples, Jesus immediately tells the disciples something that he really hasn't shared with them to this point. And that is he immediately tells them that, yes, I am the Messiah and I am going to suffer. I am going to be betrayed and I am going to die. But three days later, rise from the dead. Now, when the disciples heard that, they didn't have categories for that. They couldn't think of that. 
And they were very confused by that. So Jesus is going to spend the rest of his time with his disciples over and over, telling them these things are going to happen, telling them why these things are going to happen, and what does it mean to follow him. And so in the first half of Mark's gospel, Jesus called people to follow him. In the second half of Mark's gospel, Jesus is teaching us what it looks like to follow him. And if you follow Jesus, you're going to take up your cross with Jesus. If you follow Jesus, you're going to suffer like Jesus. If you follow Jesus, you're going to have to at least die to self. And if you follow Jesus, the good news is, is that there is a resurrection. And so what does this transfiguration story tell us? Now, if you're new to the Bible, this is maybe a strange story. You have one guy leading three other guys up on a tall mountain. The one guy shines like the sun, is just glowing. Two dudes who have been dead for centuries pop up. They start talking to each other. The next thing you know, there's a big cloud that envelops all of them. A voice booms down to them. That's pretty weird. But yet, those of us who are familiar with this story, it doesn't seem very weird, but it's very, if, if we really get into the nitty gritty of it, it really helps us every day in our everyday life. And so here's what we want to see this morning as quickly as I can do it. I want us to see that in the transfiguration, we see Jesus's glory on the mountain, his grace for the valley, and a glimpse into our future. So let's just unpack that. Number one, the glory of Jesus on the mountain. Now, at the end of chapter eight, after Jesus has just told the disciples, yes, I am the Messiah, I'm the Messiah that's gonna suffer and die, uh, Peter's gonna run his mouth, uh, he's gonna say, no, you're not gonna suffer and die, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't have your minds on the things of God. You have your mind on the things of man. And here's what he says is he says, Jesus says, one day I'm going to come back in glory with the holy angels. So that's the end of chapter eight. Verse one, Jesus is continuing saying, talking to his disciples. And he says that truly uh, there is coming a day that some of you that are with me are going to see my glory. You're going to see the kingdom of God come with power and you're going to see it before you die. And so everybody's there like, well, is it going to be me? I want to see that. Like how many of you, if I said, Hey, I, you're going to see Jesus return. You're like, well, I hope that I'm here for that. I don't want to, I don't want to die. I want to see Jesus return in glory and power. And so all these disciples are like, well, I hope it's me. And so verse two happens. And the, and Mark tells us that there's six days that, that transpire between what Jesus says in verse one to what, Jesus, well, what happens in verse two. Now, this is the first time up to this point in Mark's gospel that Mark gives us a time signature, six days. So he doesn't just do that just to do that. He's doing that for a purpose. I believe that he is paralleling another thing, that, another uh, situation that happened in the Old Testament uh, in, in another mountain, a mountain of Sinai. And it was there in Exodus 24 that for six days, Moses, the man of God, was on Mount Sinai before the greatest revelation of God in the Old Testament comes into his life. We're on the mountain of God in Exodus, God shows Moses his glory. So I think here, I know that for some of you geeky, nerdy Bible people like me, that makes sense. If you don't, you're like, okay, here's what ultimately I think Mark is doing by the, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that Mark is subtly pointing to a greater Moses who will bring a greater Exodus for the people of God. And so, uh, so there they are. And like, remember all these guys are like, well, I hope it's, I hope it's me. I hope I see the glory of God. And so you see here that Jesus doesn't take all 12. He takes three. He takes Peter, James, and John. These are kind of known as the inner circle. Uh, there are at least three occasions in Mark's gospel that these three men will have exclusive experiences. 
In Mark chapter five, Peter, James, and John were taken to Jairus' house, uh, and there they witnessed Jesus raise this 12-year-old daughter from the dead. Later on in Mark chapter 14, when Jesus went with the disciples uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane, he took Peter, James, and John, and he was praying, and they were sleeping. They're great Baptists. They just fall asleep. And then the other occasion is here in Mark chapter 9. And so the question is, you may think, well, that doesn't seem very fair. Like, like, that's not cool. Like, how many of you have ever had your kids say, oh, that's not fair? Well, let me just, if they ever say that to you, here's what you can say to them. Did you know that fairness is not a doctrine in the Bible? It's not. There's no doctrine. It's the doctrine of fair. So Jesus, in his sovereignty, chose these guys. Maybe another reason why he chose these guys is because these three guys were the rowdiest disciples of all. They got in the most trouble. Peter kept running his mouth. James and John were known as the sons of thunder. And so maybe what Jesus was doing is he was keeping them out of trouble by keeping them close to him. So they go up to a high mountain. Now, there's a lot of speculation. If you go to Israel, I mean, if you go to certain guys, they'll tell you it's this mountain. You go to another guy, he'll tell you it's that mountain or this mountain or the other mountain. Here's what I believe the mountain is. It's Mount Hermon. Now, you can either agree with me or be wrong, but that's what I believe. <laughs> Mount Hermon is, is just north of Caesarea Philippi. Why is that important? Because Caesarea Philippi is where Peter made that confession. About a few miles north of Caesarea Philippi, is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is 9,232 feet above sea level. It's the highest mountain in the area. So I believe that that's where Jesus went. It doesn't matter where he went. What matters is what happens on top of the mountain. On top of the mountain, the Bible says, we read it real quick, but the Bible says that Jesus was transfigured before them. That word transfigured, we don't really use transfigured, uh, but we use transformed. Uh, it's the word metamorphosis, where we get that from. It's a change. Metamorphosis is when a, butterfly, or when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Here's what we have is not that Jesus turned into something else, but it just revealed who he was. And so you have the glory of God bursting out of Jesus, the Son of God. So Jesus' divinity burst out of his humanity. That which was once concealed is now revealed. One pastor, a guy named Chris Brown, said about this, he says, the miracle isn't that Jesus revealed his glory on the mountain. The miracle is that for 33 years on earth, he concealed it. And so Chris Brown says, on the mountain, Jesus just pressed pause on the miracle of the incarnation and revealed his true identity. Now, could you imagine being there and seeing that? How would you describe it? And so what you're gonna have is that this account is found in three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're known as the synoptic gospels. And each one of them, only really none of them were there. Think about that. Neither Matthew, Martin, or Luke were there. So they had to get this from Peter, James, and John. And in their description of it, it's, it shows Jesus. And it's not that they contradict each other. It's just how do you describe it? And so when Matthew describes what happened on that mountain, Matthew describes what Jesus' face looks like. And so Matthew says that Jesus' face shone like the sun, the brightness of the sun. Now, how many of you, when you were a kid, used to use a magnifying glass and kill bugs? Any of y'all do that? I did. You can burn paper with it. I mean, listen, it is a gateway drug for pyromaniac, okay? Pyromaniacs, right? It's a little magnifying glass. And so, you know, you get there and you would do the little magnifying glass, get the sun just right. I mean, could you, I, I lived in Kentucky. I couldn't imagine what you could do in Naples. I mean, you could have napalm down here in Naples with a magnifying glass, all right? And so you get there and now if you ever looked at it, it would leave a little dot in your eye. Y'all remember what I'm talking about? 
Well, I think that that little dot that you see with a magnification of the sun, if you make that just way more than that, that's what Jesus's face shone like. Luke describes it that his face shone like lightning, like a bolt of lightning. Mark doesn't talk about his face. This is from Peter. So we know that Mark's source is Peter. So Mark doesn't talk about his face, probably couldn't see his face, but he saw his clothing. And he says that his clothing was radiant, intensely white like bleach. And so when Peter thought about the transfiguration, he thought about Clorox. (laughs) It was so white. Now, why is that important? Because they're symbolic. It speaks of his righteousness, but it speaks of Old Testament prophecy. In Daniel 7, verse 9, Daniel prophesies about the Son of Man who's also known as the Ancient of Days. Now, why that's important is later on, you're gonna hear Jesus call himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days is God. And in Daniel's description, centuries before this occasion, when Daniel saw the Ancient of Days, he says that he was so intensely, his clothing was so intensely white, white as snow. So there Jesus says, I don't know what that, I mean, I can't even imagine. Like the closest thing I would tell you right now is just look up and look at one of the lights for a while and maybe that gives you a somewhat of an idea. So there that's going on, his face is shining, his clothes are dazzling and then appear two dudes who've been dead for a long time. One guy's been dead 1,400 years, the other guy's been dead 900 years, but yet these two dudes are the heroes of the Jewish faith. If there was a Mount Rushmore of Jewish heroes, at least Moses and Elijah's face would be on it. They represented the law and the prophets. They also represented prophecy. The last prophet before Jesus was born in a little town called Bethlehem was a guy named Malachi. Malachi chapter four says that the signal that the, that the Messiah has come and that the kingdom of God is breaking into the world is two guys are gonna show up, Moses and Elijah. The other thing about Moses and Elijah is that both Moses and Elijah had mountaintop experiences. They had a mountaintop experiences where they saw the glory of God and they were on Mount Sinai. Romans chapter three says that, that, that there is a righteousness of God that is reveal, revealed apart from the law. So a righteousness that doesn't come by keeping the law, but there's a righteousness that's revealed apart from the law and the righteousness of God revealed apart from the law is the law keeper and the law giver, Jesus, and both the law and the prophets bear witness to him of Jesus. And so here you have this incredible scene, like all, like every, every Jewish little boy would dream of seeing Messiah, Elijah, and Moses. And so there Peter is, he is in awe, And guess what he does? He runs his mouth. Verse five, Jesus, whoops, Jesus is talking with Elijah and Moses. Peter interrupts. Looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. (laughs) You think? Now let me just give you some, some advice. If you see Jesus in his glory, and two of the greatest Old Testament prophets that were dead, alive in front of you, it's not about you, okay? It's just not. And so Peter says, well, let us make three tents. Have you ever said something dumb? (laughs) And as soon as it comes out of your mouth, you regret saying what you just said? And how do you try to fix what you just said that was dumb? 
by saying more dumb things. <laughs> it is good that we are here. Now let's do something stupid, all right? Now, how we know this was funky is this, is Mark, who is getting this source from Peter, gives a commentary after Peter says what he says, because here's the deal. Peter's probably saying, Mark, listen, they gotta understand, if you would've saw what I saw, you would've said something stupid too. And so the Bible says, he did not know, verse six, he did not know what to say. That's what verse six says. That's Peter saying, hey, Mark, make sure they know I didn't know what to say, all right? So here's the deal. If you are ever in a situation where you don't know what to say, don't say anything at all. So as that was happening, as Peter says his foolishness, a cloud comes down. The word overshadowed is the same word found in Luke's gospel that describes when, Mary was, uh, when Jesus was conceived in Mary and the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. And so here you have the cloud. Now, a cloud in the Old Testament was a symbol of the presence of God. In the Old Testament, the, the cloud was on the mountain when God was speaking to Moses. The cloud would hover over the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement, signifying the presence of God. It was a cloud that led the people of God, of Israel, uh, by day and a pillar of fire by night. And here's the deal about the cloud. The cloud was deadly. If you touched the cloud, the glory cloud, you're dead. So here Peter's running his mouth. Next thing you know, haze is coming down. And the glory cloud is shining. So here you have Jesus shining. Elijah and Moses, they're probably shining too. Clouds are coming down, and then a voice, the voice of God. Could you imagine God right now speaking to you audibly? Could you imagine if he picked up this roof right now and said, boo? <laughs> you'd have to check yourself, wouldn't you? You'd have to check. You'd be like, oh, Lord. <laughs> wow, what's that warm sensation? I mean, listen. <laughs> And so the voice comes out. It's a theophany. God speaks. Now, this isn't the first time he said similar words in chapter 1, verse 11, but those were to Jesus. Here we find in chapter 9, in verse 7, that these are to the disciples. They say, God the Father says, this is my beloved son. In other words, the son of is to be equal to. So in the Jewish thought, son of something is equal to. This is my beloved son, the son that I love. This is me. This is my equal. This is how I've chosen to reveal my glory to you. Jesus is God in a language that we can understand. So he says, listen to him. Now, I looked up, listen to him in the Greek. You know what? It, I, here's what it says. Shut up <laughs> and listen to him. Now, that's not necessarily what the Greek says, but it's what my Greek said. And so think about this. So there they are. They, they don't know what to say, so they just start saying stuff. God says, shut up, listen to him and only him. Do you understand that we hear voices all the time? There are all kinds of voices talking to us. And many of us, if we're honest, there are other voices that are louder and more influential to us than the voice of Jesus. We listen to the voices of Fox News and MSNBC and CNN and radio political pundits. We listen to the voices of celebrities and athletes. We listen to the voices of our friends, of our critics. And we even listen to the voices of our own self. And sadly, those things are more impacting in our, to our lives than what Jesus has said. So we talked about a few weeks ago that, that, that our life is a battle, really, of who we listen to. So we don't really have a, when it comes, if you're a Christian, you really don't have a hearing problem. You have a listening problem. 
See, we hear what God says through his word, through his son, through his spirit, but we don't really listen to it. We don't internalize it. We don't apply it. You know why? Because we're too busy talking. Have you ever talked to somebody and you know they ain't paying attention? I do every week. <laughs> Some of y'all have to think about that one. Have you ever talked to somebody, you know they're not, a paying atten- they're not paying attention to. Have you ever talked, has somebody ever talked to you and you're not paying attention to them? The only thing you're thinking about is what you're gonna say to them next. I think that's how we are with God. We're not really listening to him. I mean, how many times do we just get through our little Bible reading plans, do the check thing and move on? We don't listen to God because we're too busy talking either to God or somebody else. We have to take time to be still. And so listen, you can't hear God if you're too busy talking. That's what Peter did. And in Peter's talking, he, he revealed how ignorant he was. I mean, Peter says, all right, Jesus, we're up here on the mountain. This is pretty awesome. Let's set, up, let's set up camp. Let's have three tents, three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. When Peter was saying that, he was basically saying, Jesus, you're on the same level as Moses and Elijah. But I want you to understand, Jesus is not Moses and Elijah's replacement. Jesus is not Moses and Elijah's equal. Jesus is Moses and Elijah's superior. Because unlike Moses and unlike Elijah, who merely reflected the glory of God, Jesus himself is the glory of God. See, Jesus does not point to the glory of God as the prophets did. He is the glory of God in human form. Now you say, well, how is that practical? Well, let me just go a little bit more practical. In Peter's day, Moses and Elijah were like the dudes. There are people in your life, maybe they're a preacher, a pastor, an author, celebrity, or somebody in your life that you listen to and you listen to them so much, you may not say this verbally, but subconsciously, you will put them on the same level as Jesus. Don't do it. No pastor, no preacher, no author, no philosopher, no psychologist, no political pundit is on the level of Jesus. Because Jesus is the source of glory. If you, re- if you are, if you Say something good, if you do something right, if you do something helpful, you're just reflecting the glory. See, Jesus is the sun and we're the moon. We reflect glory, we don't emit glory. Jesus emits glory, we reflect glory. And so I would tell you, you need to moon the world with Jesus. (laughs) Right? Jesus is superior. He's better. One of the great failures that most of us have is we have a tendency to underestimate Jesus. We really do. We bring him down to our level. A.W. Tozer says it in his great book, The Knowledge of the Holy, on page one, he says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. You know, a lot of people, even in the church, have a warped view of Jesus. We tend to have uh, this caricature of Jesus. We create the Jesus of our own imagination. 
We make the Jesus of our own personal preferences and we worship that Jesus. And so what we do is we have, this is who my Jesus is. I don't know who your Jesus is, but my Jesus would never say that. My Jesus would never do that. And what happens is that we have so westernized and 21st centuryized and so secularized Jesus that we are diminishing who he is. So Kevin DeYoung wrote a few years ago this little paper about the caricatures or these versions of Jesus that we have and, and even in the church today. So let me just share some of them with you. He says, there's the Republican Jesus who's against tax increases, activist judges, and for family values and owning firearms. He says there's a Democrat Jesus who is against Wall Street and Walmart, against global warming, is for printing money and letting love be love. There's therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are not to be so hard on ourselves. There's open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians <laughs> and determines the outcome of Super Bowls. <laughs> There's gentle Jesus who is meek and mild with high cheekbones, flowing hair, walks barefoot and wears a sash. There's hippie Jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagine a world without religion, and helps us remember all you need is love. There's yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. And there's good example Jesus, who shows you how to help people change the planet, recycle more, and become the better you. The problem is, is that each and every one of those pale in comparison to the true Jesus, because Jesus is far higher, far greater, and more than you and I can imagine. He is not a reflection of the current mood of society, nor is he a projection of our own desires. He is King of kings, Lord of lords, Father, Son, the Savior of the world, the substitute for our sins. He is more loving, more holy, and wonderfully terrifying than any of us could ever imagine possible. He is God, and he's all you need. That's why verse number eight says, soon as the cloud's over, as soon as Moses and Elijah are gone, suddenly the disciples, Peter, James, and John, look around, and they saw no one but Jesus only. The law and the prophets all point to Jesus. He's the only one that matters. And if he's all that you have, he's all that you need. That's the glory of God on the mountain, the glory of Jesus on the mountain. But see, in the transfiguration, we not only see the, the glory of Jesus on the mountain, but we see the grace of Jesus for the valley. Verse nine, they come down the mountain. Peter wanted to stay up there. Peter's like, all right, Jesus, we're gonna set up camp. We're gonna start a fire. Matter of fact, you just be the fire. I'm gonna get some, some marshmallows. We'll get the kosher hot dogs. Man, we'll have a party up here. Got you, got Moses, got Elijah. But, they, but it was over. It's quick. See, life's not lived on the mountains. It's not lived on the mountaintop. Life's lived in the valley. So here they go. They're going back down, down to the valley, back to reality. Now, I want you to imagine the excitement. Peter, James, and John, like, they're going down the mountain, and like, they're strutting. They're like, man, look what we see, man. I mean, they, in their mind, they could, not they could not wait 
to tell everybody. I mean, if TikTok was available back then, the Chinese would have seen it all. I mean, you know, if it, if it would have happened, this would have happened. I mean, no one ever saw what they saw or lived to tell about it. I mean, anybody who ever got close to that Shekinah glory, it's unimaginable. So they're all there, they're walking down the mountain. They're all jazzed up. Jesus looks at them and says, I don't tell anybody. <laughs> you can't tell anybody until after I'm risen from the dead. I mean, what a buzzkill. <laughs> this is the last time Jesus commands silence. The last, and it's really the only one with the time limitations. Now, why in the world would Jesus tell them not to tell anybody until I'm crucified and risen from the dead? Here's why. Because you really can't understand the glory of Jesus until you understand the suffering of Jesus. So they're walking down the hill. They're all upset. Verse 10, they are asking questions within themselves. What is, what is the res what risen Messiah? What? They don't have categories. Number one, they don't have any categories for a Messiah that dies. In their mind, when Messiah came, when Hamashiach came, he would set up rule, set up reign, make Israel great, continue to uh, bring about the changes of the law that came from the law of God and would be a light to the Gentiles and all the Gentiles would bow down and worship the Jewish people. They imagine, and the reason why they've been following Jesus is that they were gonna go with him. And so they were excited to follow this rabbi because here's the deal, guys. We know, we know the Jesus story on the other side. They're living it in real time. And so yes, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe that he's God. But they don't know all the ramifications of that, and they definitely don't have any categories for suffering. And so they couldn't comprehend it. And so they're sitting there, risen Savior. And then, verse 11, they ask Jesus a question. Now, remember, the Father just said, shut up and listen. And what are they doing? They're asking questions. And so the question is, well, why is it that the scribes of the law say that Elijah must come first? So they, they were up on the mountain. Elijah's up on the mountain. They saw Moses. They saw Elijah as little Jewish boys, every Passover meal, there was an empty seat at the table. It's called Elijah's seat. It's because every Jewish person, even to this day, if you go to a Passover Seder, they are looking for Elijah to come because Malachi said that before the Messiah comes, Elijah must come. And so they're saying, all right, Jesus, we just saw Elijah. What's the deal about Elijah? And so Jesus says, you know, that's a great question. Elijah does come first before the Messiah. But he's already come, and he came in the person of John the Baptist. And guess what, guess what happened to John the Baptist? We, we didn't really go through this, but John the Baptist got his head cut off. You know, John said, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. He got decreased, okay? And so Jesus says, listen, the same Bible that says that Elijah must come before the Messiah is the same Bible that says that the Son of Man, important phrase, the Messiah must suffer. So yes, you saw my glory. But for that glory to be seen in the world, I must suffer. See, suffering is coming after me and suffering's coming after you. For glory to come, suffering must come. Before the crown, there must be a cross. Crucifixion precedes resurrection. Without a crucifixion, there is no resurrection. That's what you have to understand. So why, why would Jesus do this? Why was Jesus transfigured? And here's why. It was grace. 
Now, let's just review grace real quick. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Now, I used this in the last service, so I'm gonna use it in here. Justice, you've, you're gonna hear me tell you this illustration many, many years, so let's just keep, continue the tradition. Justice is getting what you deserve. So if you're driving on Livingston as soon as church is over and you're doing 90 miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour zone, you're gonna get a ticket. Cop pulls you over, gives you a ticket, that's justice. If you're doing 90 to 45, cop pulls you over, doesn't give you a ticket, that's mercy. It's not getting what you deserve. You deserve a ticket, you don't get it. Grace is that same cop pulling you over, not giving you a ticket, giving you a $100 bill, and telling you have a great day. That's grace, getting what you don't deserve. Here's what you have to understand. When Jesus revealed who he was, it was an intentional, an intentional demonstration of his grace. Number one, these three guys saw the glory of Jesus and didn't die. Two is this, and this is, stay with me. Every bit of revelation that God gives us about himself is a gift of grace. We don't deserve to know anything about him. And so this transfiguration moment was ultimately for them to see who he was. Now, yes, there was some encouragement that perhaps came through Elijah and Moses, but notice the phrases, it was done before them, it overshadowed them, Jesus was with them, Jesus did this for them. And so Jesus here in this moment on the mountain, because Peter's confusion earlier, Jesus is now gonna demonstrate to them that yes, I am the king of glory. I am the Lord of the mountain. But yet, as the king of glory, I must suffer and be killed so that you don't go to hell. Yes, I'm from heaven, but you're headed to hell. And so to get you to heaven, I have to go to hell for you. But Jesus is letting them know that I am not going as a victim. I'm going as a volunteer because I am a victor. Why Jesus revealed who he was to Peter, James, and John was this. It was to comfort their troubled hearts. They had left everything to follow him. They had pinned their entire hopes and dreams on him. And when Jesus tells them earlier that he must die, they don't have categories for that. They don't necessarily know that that's what they want. And so Jesus shows them who he truly is and tells them why he came so that they in the moment of their suffering, when they see Jesus being crucified, they will know this isn't the end. Stay with me, this is an important point, we're about to be done, I promise. When God reveals himself to you on the mountain, it is an act of grace that prepares you for life and ministry in the valley. Some of you have had mountaintop experiences. Maybe you were in student camp. Maybe you were in vacation Bible school. Maybe you were in a revival meeting. Maybe you were in some conference. Sometime in your life, God has really revealed who he is to you. Maybe you've overcome a, tra a traumatic situation. Maybe you have, have had situations in your life where you have seen the glory of God. And those glimpses of glory are God's grace to you. See, remember, Peter wanted to stay on the mountain forever, but life's not lived on the mountain. It's lived in the valley, and it's in the valley that you need a vision for God that will sustain you. See, it's the glory of Jesus on the mountain that's the grace of Jesus that will sustain Peter, James, and John in the valley. 
Because in the valleys where we sin, in the valleys where we struggle, in the valleys where we suffer, in the valley is where we have issues. See, they saw his glory on the mountain so that they could live and suffer by his grace in the valley. See, Jesus does not reveal himself to you so that you can sit and soak on the mountaintop experience, but so that you can be sent to serve on mission for him in the valley. And that is why if you and I want to be effective for God, if you and I want to survive and thrive in the valley, we have to have a fresh vision of who God is. You just have to have it. It is vision and worship of God that fuels and propels you for the mission of God. And that's why when we gather, it's important. When we gather to worship, it's not going through the motions. It's not checking a box so we don't go to hell. It is so that we can be propelled and fueled to face life in the valley. Some of you are gonna leave. As soon as you get out of here, all hell's gonna break loose. It's gonna be the vision of God that you get when you gather with the people of God that's gonna propel you to deal with the things of this world. But you can't just depend on one sermon a week and one meeting a week to get you through. That's why every day you have to be in the word of God. You have to get into God's word so that God's word gets into you and gives you a fresh vision of who he is. You have to spend time with him in prayer. You need to be around other believers that can encourage you and strengthen you and, and admonish you because we need a fresh vision because life in the valley is hard. It's easy on the mountain. It's hard in the valley. And it's the glory of Jesus on the mountain that will sustain you with his grace in the valley. So what I pray for you is this, that you would get a fresh vision of God. Have you heard what's going on in Kentucky beyond our stinky basketball team? <laughs> in Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury University, in a chapel service, Wednesday at 10 a.m., they begin to worship the Lord and they're still worshiping right now. They hadn't stopped. Young people are repenting of their sins. They're confessing their sins. They're committing their lives to service. They, they are praying for the world. They're praying for each other. They're worshiping the Lord. I mean, revival is happening in Asbury University. It's so powerful that the media is talking about it. It's so powerful that other college campuses in the area are having similar revival services. God is moving. They're still right now moving. They're worshiping God. And that's a movement. And I want, don't you want to see that movement here? I mean, this Thursday, I'm gonna be speaking at chapel to our students here, middle school and high school. Would you pray with me that God would move like that here this week? Oh, that we would have genuine revival. But listen, if you wanna see revival in the world, if you wanna see revival in the nation, it's gonna start with you. I need revival, you need revival. We need a fresh vision of Jesus. Some of y'all don't need revival. Some of y'all need revival. <laughs> you need to give your life to Christ. And so here's what we're gonna end right now with this. 
I want to give you that opportunity to ask God for one simple thing. So would you just bow your heads, close your eyes. Would you pray this simple prayer with me? Lord Jesus, show me your glory. Lord Jesus, fill my heart with your presence. Lord Jesus, give me a fresh vision of who you are. Would you pray that right there? Oh Lord, would you show us your glory? Would you give us a fresh vision of who you are? That you are the God of the mountain and you give grace to us down in the valley. Lord, be magnified in our lives. May we reflect your glory to a world that's broken. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and let's sing that Christ would be magnified? Thank you for joining us as we go through God's word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.